This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, a professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is Daniel Treisman. Daniel is a professor of political science at UCLA and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He's published extensively in top academic journals in both political science and economics. His specialty is Russia, and he's also published influential work in comparative political economy on topics including democratization, authoritarianism, corruption, and decentralization. On top of this academic work, he's also played an important role as a public intellectual, writing for outlets including Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, CNN.com, and The New York Times. Today, we'll be talking about his new book, Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. This book is aimed at a general audience and synthesizes a vast amount of qualitative and quantitative research by the authors and many others to make the case that dictatorship in the present era is taking a new form. The book is highly readable with a great mix of anecdotes and examples, along with uh, very understandable overviews or references to academic research. Um, so it's, it's perfect for anyone from any background. However, it's also a great intro, intro to overview of the field for any uh, social science scholar or student as well, since um, they provide endnotes um, linking to the underlying research behind almost every sentence. Um, I'll also say the endnotes are important. I, I normally hate endnotes, um, but they, they work really well in this book because it keeps the main text very uncluttered um, while also giving all these references. So if you're you know a PhD student and you want to find out like, oh, what was this thing that he was talking about in this one sentence? You're not left kind of hanging, wondering if it was just you know a throwaway or if it was actually based on something substantial. Um, one thing to, to be aware of is if you pick up the book, it's like 340 pages and it looks like it's going to be a, a big slog to get through it. Um, but a hundred and over a hundred of those pages are actually the footnotes. So it's only 219 pages. So I, I was kind of on the fence of like, maybe they should have somehow put that in online appendix. Cause then it could have been a nice slim paperback. And I think the airport readers might've been uh, a little bit happier with that, but that's just, that's just my, uh, my thing. But anyway, it's good in this case that it's not footnotes, even though I think most of us academics like footnotes better. Um, the book is co-authored with economist Sergei Guryev, a professor at, uh, at France's Sciences Po. Guryev led Russia's influential new economic school in Moscow until 2013, when his outspoken views made it necessary to leave the country. We're going to mainly talk about the book today, but we'll also naturally be talking a bit about the war on Ukraine and how Dan sees Russia now. So let's get started. Dan, welcome. So let's plunge right in. What is a spin dictatorship? Sure. So uh, a spin dictator, uh, a spin dictatorship is the new model of dictatorship that we see becoming increasingly prevalent in in recent decades. So uh, if you think back, the classic dictator in the 20th century uh, was very violent. Can think of leaders like Stalin or, or Mao uh, or Hitler. Each of those killed millions. Uh, they jailed hundreds of thousands or millions of political prisoners. They censored 
and controlled all, all their media. And they imposed an official ideology along with loyalty rituals. Uh, now, even, even those 20th century dictators that uh, didn't have an official ideology, people like uh, Augusto Pinochet in Chile or Mobutu in what's now the DRC, uh, these guys were still very violent. And violence was deliberately public. They wanted people to be scared. So some held public executions or left the corpses of murdered opponents in the streets. So that was the kind of model that we see prevailing in the 20th century. Uh, obviously, various uh, subtypes within that, but all uh, really very violent. But if you look at the average non-democratic leader in the last few decades, uh, it's someone like Hugo Chavez in uh, Venezuela or Viktor Orban from Hungary, uh, the leaders of Singapore, or even the early Putin. So these guys, they wear expensive suits rather than military fatigues. Uh, they hold elections and pretend to be democratic. They allow some opposition media and uh, pretend that they don't uh, censor it for political reasons. They don't impose any official ideology and uh, they use relatively little violent repression. When they do lock up their critics, they camouflage it as uh, anti-terrorism or, or, or something uh, non-political. And they manage to stay, at least for a long time, pretty popular. The trick is that behind the facade of democracy and openness, they manipulate the media to shape the flow of information to ordinary people in a way that boosts their ratings. They project the image of competent, benevolent, uh, basically democratic leaders. And they use the strong popular support that they generate in this way to undermine checks and balances and to control elections uh, so that although the elections look superficially competitive, uh, the leader and his team always win. Instead of scaring citizens, they convince them that they're good leaders by reshaping their view of reality. So we see this, this model of dictatorship uh, really coming to prevail in recent decades. Uh, and uh, of course, there, is, there remain still some fear dictators like uh, Kim Jong-un in North Korea or Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Uh, but the balance, uh, by our calculations, has shifted uh, away from the model of fear dictatorship to the model of, of spin dictatorship more and more. So, so why did the uh, why did this happen? I mean, I think we still, I certainly see there's kind of a lag even in public perceptions. You know, when people are talking about other countries, I think we all have. You know, we all read 1984 in uh, in high school, and you know, then and you know, kids these days they read all kinds of dystopian fiction. But it usually seems like it's pretty much always is something where there's uh, a very heavy-handed, violent, uh, overwhelming power uh, in charge of things. So we, it seems like that still is the, the main impression of what it means to be an authoritarian state. Um, and, you know, and it seems like, I mean, it, it seems like it kind of works, right? I mean, Mao was in charge for decades. Stalin, you know, held power for quite a while and, you know, brought his country uh, to a higher level of industrialization. Um, obviously, many disastrous outcomes as well, but um, uh, both in these countries and in others. But uh, yeah, so why, why, why are they all shifting gears and suddenly picking up this uh, kinder, gentler authoritarianism? 
Well, our our understanding of it, our our idea about that is that uh, different types of dictatorship, different approaches to controlling the population work better in different phases of, uh, you could say, development. So we think that the move towards spin dictatorship uh, is a result of modernization and globalization of the world uh, that we've seen in the late 20th century and early 21st century. Uh, So we've seen uh, rates of higher education soaring around the world. Uh, The economies of more and more countries transitioning from industry uh, into services and the knowledge economy, Uh, people becoming more connected by the internet and social networks, Uh, and media and human rights movements becoming increasingly global. Uh, So, and along with that, we we see evidence of uh, some trend towards values, at least in the more economically developed countries, Uh, becoming more individualistic, more cosmopolitan, uh, a growing demand for personal and political freedoms. Okay, so all of that makes it harder to control societies with violence. Uh, Again, I don't want to exaggerate. Uh, There are still uh, dictators that operate in the old way. Uh, But Controlling a country where 80% of the workforce is in agriculture, living in small rural settlements, uh, is a lot easier than controlling a society with a large, urbanized, educated population. Uh, And it's easier to control uh, a a rural, uh, disconnected society with violence than it is to do the same uh, for a modern, urbanized uh, society. And... uh, at the same time, economic growth in the knowledge economy requires a more open society. If, if you want people to innovate, uh, you have to give them a certain amount of freedom uh, and you have to uh, encourage the kind of communications, free communications that stimulate innovation. Uh, so uh, we believe that dictators have, have come to recognize this and they've created these more sophisticated methods of controlling the political sphere uh, because these don't interfere too much with economic progress. And uh, they also reduce the demand for genuine democracy as, as values change in, through this process of economic development and, and uh, social modernization. Uh, people want democracy. So if you can pretend to give it to them uh, and uh, you know, manage to fool them in that regard, uh, then it's going to be much more effective than simply terrorizing them with lots of guns and uh, putting millions into prison cells. So, so are they really fooled? I guess that's, that's one thing, you know, I feel like we should always, as academics speak, skeptical uh, when we think we're so smart and we can look into other countries and see how things really work. Uh, but the, the people there are all gullible. Um, like how, uh, yeah, do, do they really not get it, not understand what kind of system they're in? Well, uh, surprisingly, I think that in in uh, examples of this type of uh, dictatorship, and I'm thinking of uh, Russia under Putin until at least 2012, uh, and probably a bit longer than that, uh, if we think about Venezuela under Hugo Chavez, we think about Erdogan in Turkey in, in his early years. These guys were very popular. Uh, and uh, also, I don't think that uh, most people uh, who were not engaged in, uh, you know, organized political opposition 
I don't think that most people were afraid. I think they felt that they were living in a rel relatively free societies. Uh, there's a lot of uh, opinion polling data that, that would support that for, for most of these countries. Similarly, if we look at Singapore today, uh, I think many people in Singapore uh, are relatively uh, relatively happy with the nature of the regime. Uh, they don't feel that they're living in a dictatorship. Uh, and yet, if we look very closely at uh, the way political life and, and social life in general is organized in Singapore, uh, there really uh, is a very, very little opportunity for somebody who fundamentally disagrees with the ruling party's policies and approach uh, to do anything about it uh, or to do anything effective about it. So I think it, you're absolutely right. We have to be very skeptical about, uh, uh, you know, the, the simple results of opinion polls that come out of authoritarian settings. But uh, looking at the, these, this kind of evidence uh, in a more sophisticated way, trying to, uh, uh, trying to exclude the possibility of, of people simply uh, reporting what they think is required for them to say or, or saying something out of fear, uh, we do see evidence of genuine popularity for a lot of these leaders, uh, at, at, at least uh, for a considerable part of their time in office. Uh, and uh, in part, uh, what these spin dictators do very effectively is to change people's opinions about the alternatives, including the outside world. So, uh, for instance, in Russia, I think people uh, from quite early on under Putin have recognized that there, there was a certain level of fraud uh, or uh, at least irregularities in elections. Uh, but they also are very conscious that... Uh, Similar problems with elections occur in many, many countries around the world, including uh, democracies. And the, the flaws of, de of elections in democracies like the U.S. Uh, are uh, exaggerated and publicized by the propaganda. So the sense that uh, their country is at least a reasonably acceptable democracy uh, when compared to places like the U.S., uh, you know, seems maybe more plausible than we would think. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think uh, that this is a very different situation uh, than existed uh, in, uh, you know, the standard uh, fear dictatorships of the 20th century. So should we be optimistic or pessimistic about this trend? It's... Uh... Does this mean that like they they've sort of learned a new trick and now now the dictatorships will be will be with us forever? Um, well, uh, I you know it depends whether we're right in our basic uh, thinking that what drives right. this change in regime. I mean the big underlying factors, and of course it's a very complicated process, but the big underlying factor being economic development and social modernization. You know if if we're right that that pushes dictators first from fear dictatorship to spin dictatorship, uh, then, you know, the next step is to full democracy. And so we see that even for spin dictators, it gets harder and harder to maintain control and to manage society as the society becomes more modern. And sometimes that even leads uh, spin dictators as a last resort 
to flip back, to revert to uh, techniques of fear dictatorship. Uh, we see that, for instance, in, in Russia uh, in the last few years under Putin. Um, but that we see as, you know, coming out of this, it's, it's a last resort. It's, it's a reaction to this pressure that comes from continued modernization of society. And uh, in other cases, that pressure leads to actual democratization. So, uh, for instance, Malaysia has kind of been on the borderline uh, between spin dictatorship and some people thought that uh, a few years ago it was transitioning into actual, you know, sort of low quality democracy. Uh, it's gone back a little since then, but um, but that's something that that uh, happens. And so we shouldn't be completely pessimistic. There, we believe that there's this underlying dynamic, although it may move uh, quite slowly in a lot of places towards uh, first of all, spin dictatorship, and then, and and then ultimately democracy. Um, but uh, as I mentioned, there's also the danger that spin dictators, when they feel they're losing control, uh, can seek to cling to power through the use of more force, the use of more overt uh, violent repression. Um, so, in the long run, I'd say it's it's a it's it's a moderately optimistic message, but that doesn't mean that in the short run, we expect, uh, you know, a kind of a linear process of improvement uh, around the world. Oh, and I, I should say one more thing. It's, yeah. It also depends upon the question whether modernization is going to continue uh, in, in many countries, uh, whether co countries are going to continue to become more economically modern and more socially complex. And it also depends on whether uh, globalization is going to reverse, as some people think uh, may have already begun, um, and whether these international pressures for uh, more openness, uh, more democratic politics are going to disappear. Uh, that's possible. We, we think so far the evidence doesn't uh, suggest that that's happening, but it could. So, so as you know, I, I mainly work on China, and um, I, I know in your in your framework, I think you you assess China as being uh, more of a fear dictatorship, or kind of in in between. I think those of us who are, you know, if our reference point is China in the '60s, then China certainly has a lot more of the spin dictatorship, uh, you know, characteristics, much more open uh, and accountable, and. Uh, you know, open to the world and, and much more social freedom for, for individuals. But of course, it's not having even anything close to the kind of uh, competitive elections or the level of independent press that uh, you could see um, in in Russia and many other places. So I think I think you're right in kind of putting it in between but with a similar trend. Uh, but I would say, but, but then, you know, in the of people who study China, it's been really remarkable the past um, five, 10 years, you know, seeing Xi Jinping move back in the fear direction, um, the, a lot of people have concluded, oh, all you academics were wrong. You said, you know, the whole 90s paradigm of we're going to set up global institutions and we're going to have uh, interchange of, you know, students and academics and business people. And, um, you know, that will, uh, that will, that will gradually change them. You know, this is, this is now proven wrong because first of all, you know, you you said they were going to be democratic, and then now they're actually even less democratic than they were 15 years ago. Um, and actually, it's, uh, you know, it's not not just the um, 
point of view of, uh, of Western scholars, I mean, even the Chinese government always talked about uh, this idea of peaceful evolution as the sort of insidious plan of the West, which I always thought was funny because I think we weren't that secret about it. We kind of always wanted that. And that is kind of, that was kind of the plan. But um, anyway, do you, do you think that this is uh, failed or how, how should people, how should people think of that? It's a very good question. And, and you, you uh, posed it very well. Uh, so China is a real, is a really complicated case and a, and a incredibly interesting one. Uh, when we make this argument to China specialists like yourself, uh, they usually tell us, wow, so China is really a spin dictatorship. Um, but when we talk to non-China specialists, uh, they say, oh, well, China is obviously a fear dictatorship uh, because of what we see happening in Xinjiang and in Tibet and uh, in Hong Kong. Um, and we basically come down on that side, that China is a fear dictatorship, but it's just using more modern uh, tools, uh, surveillance technologies, uh, information technologies to make uh, the spreading of fear and the control of the population more effective. Uh, but uh, looking in the longer in, in, in the longer term, we we think that China could have evolved into a spin dictatorship in the last few decades. And it looked a bit like it was heading that that direction uh, before Xi Jinping. Uh, so under Jiang Zemin and uh, Hu Jintao, uh, obviously, well, obvi and still China is more internationally open with trade and capital flows, freedom to travel. Um, they were starting uh, to tolerate some investigative reporting. Some of the internet propaganda was getting was getting quite sophisticated. But under Xi, uh, the regime seems very clearly committed these days to a reliance on fear and to spreading fear. So we hear very tough language and we see force used uh, in various places, not just Xinjiang and, and Tibet, uh, but also the, the very harsh policing and imprisonment of oppositionists in Hong Kong. And we see uh, dissidents forced to make confessions on TV uh, which uh, looks very much like the practices of old-style fear dictatorships, just using high-tech tools to make the intimidation more effective. So it, in, in that regard, uh, it's a bit like Saudi Arabia or Egypt uh, that are uh, using these new surveillance uh, technologies uh, to, to sort of turbocharge their uh, repressive approach. So... Uh, so was everybody wrong about China? Well, you know, the, the argument was that as China modernized and as it became more globally integrated, uh, I would put it probabilistically, the odds of it becoming uh, more politically liberal uh, would go up. And uh, I, I still think that's basically right. Uh, the truth is it hasn't or modernized all that much yet. I mean, it's tremendous change since uh, the start of economic reforms in 1978. But still, uh, income per capita in China is, is not that high. I, I believe it's somewhere around $15,000 a year. Uh, the level of education uh, is not that high. Uh, China, like any big country, is, is very regionally uh, varied. So you have these enclaves, obviously Hong Kong, which is a case apart, uh, with very high 
education rates, very high level of modernization. Uh, and you see exactly the kind of uh, protests, conflict, demands for greater freedom uh, than the kind, of, the, the, the kind of modernization theory approach would predict. Um, maybe Shanghai and a few other cities are approaching that level of, of modernity, and that'll be a kind of test for our, uh, our theory or our expectations uh, if we see over the coming decade whether uh, Shanghai becomes harder for the regime to control in the old-fashioned ways. But much of China, rural China, uh, or, or semi-industrialized China, uh, it, it is still not that hard to control uh, through a system that relies on quite a bit of fear. Uh, so we don't see this as really a, uh, a mistake necessarily on the part of the, you know, the old theory, theorists, uh, but we tend to want to see these theor theories uh, demonstrated immediately. Right. And in fact, it, it takes takes time and it takes, you know, continued uh, economic and social development uh, to get to the point where we would expect to see uh, significant political change. Um, so uh, I think we have to wait and see with China. Clearly, under Xi Jinping, it's going backwards in a direction towards more overt uh, fear, uh, control through fear. Um, but uh, if ever there were a case where we have to say this is not the end of the story, I think China is it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the, the other qualification I'd maybe add or, or nuance to what you're saying is that, you know, when we think about like, what is life like in China, it's, it depends a lot about what, you know, especially what ethnic group you're, you're in and what, you know, when you think about the, the most repressive cases, that story is from Xinjiang and from Tibet and from Hong Kong, which would be kind of like judging, you know, well, like, what is the experience? What is it like to be an American if you ask, you know, a black person living in a poor community um, or a rich community even, but like that you'll get a very different personal lived experience than if you ask uh, some, you know, middle class white person. Um, and so, you know, what, how are the police in America? That question gets answered very differently by different people. Um, and, and then also, if you think about, you know, is America democratic? And we sort of look at like maybe Puerto Rico versus, or, you know, even Washington DC, right. Which, uh, you know, and they have less democratic, uh, rights than the rest of us in a weird way. Um, right. so again, you, it kind of depends which, you know, uh, you know, the old blind man, the elephant, uh, story, right. Which, which part you look at. Um, but I think you're, you're absolutely right that, the, that even within the, the Han Chinese majority in China, that there, there's still very strong elements of fear. Um, my own suspicion is that actually that there's also a, a you know, uh, sort of a version of class conflict is an important part of this, because even if mm -hmm. Shanghai people want to have much more freedom and independence, they're in a sort of uh, quasi-apartheid system where they get access to better schools, better healthcare, better social services, uh, you know, housing that's now worth, you know, a million dollars or more, um, that they're by, by virtue of their birth in that location. And if they, you know, in a, in a democratic system where the average peasant gets the same vote as the average Shanghainese, I think it would be, well, at least are pretty good at holding on to what they have, but it would be a challenge for them to hold on to um, some of the, thing, the privileges they've had so far. Right. And one thing that we perhaps don't talk enough about in the book is co-optation. Uh, we do talk, we, we, we mention it, of course, but um, clearly when a country 
uh, has massive resources and very high rates of growth, it's easier to co-opt uh, the most sophisticated, educated, uh, modern part of the population uh, with you know, generous material benefits. Uh, and clearly that helps as well as, uh, as, as, well as uh, manipulating information and, and propaganda and so on. Um, but uh, I think we need to wait and see about, uh, about places like Shanghai and what we see in Hong Kong uh, could be the future of Shanghai. We don't know that, of course. And uh, clearly what the Chinese, before she, well, I shouldn't say clearly, it seems to me that uh, before she, the Chinese were really trying to implement something like the Singapore model, uh, trying to move towards uh, a sophisticated uh, way of controlling the more modern parts of the country uh, which would involve both co-optation and creation of dependence on the state for material benefits, and also just a, a, a very well-curated uh, public space uh, with uh, limits on media, but not absolute uh, censorship anymore. Um, she has moved back away from that and has brought uh, you know, the power of the state uh, much more clearly into the picture uh, at least as I understand as a non-China specialist. And, and so the kind of clash of demands in, in a place like Shanghai is going to be very interesting to watch. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, so you've come in, uh, you're coming in pretty strongly for, you know, kind of a version of, of uh, you know, what I learned in grad school is a modernization hypothesis, that there's something about development in a broad sense that, tends to push towards democracy and you're saying, yes, there's, you know, there's kind of this halfway point and it, and it's a good stalling tactic by dictators to, um, you know, put in place the kind of spin dictatorship that, and that'll, that'll help them hold on for, you know, potentially quite a lot, quite a long while, but the, but the general trend, um, is still, is still there with the, the caveat, as you said, that if we, you know, as a, as a globe move away from globalization and modernization and, uh, you know, uh, sort of collaboration across countries, then, then that might change. Um, I was, to what extent do you think, you know, uh, is that the consensus? I guess I was going back and looking, you know, I remember a paper by um, uh, Asamoglu, Johnson, Robinson, and Yared, who were arguing that, uh, you know, there's this relationship between democracy and, and income, and they focus really on income. Um, and, they said that's just that's just spurious because really it's about those democratic institutions which are founded in the deep past uh, then cause higher income growth or income levels in the present, but that there's no uh, if if I'm remembering the paper right you can correct me on that too but that there's no yeah. feedback mechanism in the other direction so so to what extent do you uh, does your view disagree with theirs and, and what do you think the basis of the, that disagreement is? Yeah, I, I disagree uh, pretty strongly. Uh, with the argument that they make and also with the data that they use. Uh, I, I think looking more carefully at the data uh, over a longer time period, 
uh, it's pretty clear that there is a relationship between increases in, in uh, income and in economic development and increases in democracy. Uh, I have uh, a couple of papers about this. Um, one key point is that we shouldn't expect an immediate relationship or a, a linear relationship that'll show up in annual data between the level of economic development and, and the level of uh, democratic uh, freedom or, or, or democratic institutions. Um, because, you know, political change is in a sense lumpy. Uh, if you look at longer periods, like 10, 10 years or 20 years, then, then the level of economic development at the start of that period uh, is strongly related to the uh, change in political institutions during the whole of that period. And I think that's in part, I have one paper which argues that that's at least in part because the big political changes tend to come when there's turnover of the leader. Uh, so uh, especially when we're talking about dictatorships, a dictator can be in power for a long time. Uh, the country can develop economically under that leader, um, but you won't necessarily see an immediate change in, in the political institutions or in, in, in the type of politics. But uh, very often when uh, a dictator who has overseen dramatic modernization of the country uh, loses power or, or leaves power in any way, uh, the following few years see an increase, a significant increase in uh, the level of democracy. So um, we shouldn't expect a kind of simple uh, linear process, but I think there is a, a strong relationship between economic development and uh, and uh, political development or, or democracy, at least in the medium run. Um, and uh, I've never really understood the alternative view. I mean, the alternative view seems to be that uh, countries got onto a, a countries basically had already a certain type of institutions hundreds of years ago, uh, which explains basically everything that's happened in the last 200 years, uh, because at, you know, 225 years ago, there were no democracies. Even 125 years ago, uh, on a slightly more demanding definition of democracy, there were no democracies. And yet, uh, much of the globe has turned democratic in the interim and within the West, within Europe and, and the Americas, uh, almost all the countries have become at least uh, minimally democratic during that period. So there's been a dramatic change in the nature of political regimes, the nature of political institutions, uh, which really has, has uh, occurred just about everywhere in the West over the course of the last 200 years, uh, which is it seems to me very hard to explain in terms of, you know, the initial institutional starting points of these countries, maybe 500 years ago, uh, or at least more than 200 years ago. Um, and the fact that we see this kind of universal process of democracy spreading, uh, at least in the West and to some extent elsewhere, uh, seems to be inconsistent with an emphasis on the differences in the institutions across those Western countries at some early date. So it seems to me uh, 
basically the history that we see over the last 200 years has been a history of, well, since the Industrial Revolution, dramatic economic change leading to social change. Uh, and uh, in parallel, uh, changes in the political systems uh, that uh, correlate with uh, the changes, the prior changes in, in uh, economies and society. Um, so yes, uh, it's, there are these different schools of thought about this, and I don't mean to say that institutions never matter. Uh, clearly, institutional differences can matter. Uh, but if we're trying to explain the big sweep of history over the last 200 years, and if we're trying to explain the spread of democracy, uh, I think, and, and generally the evolution of political regimes, I, I think that the process of economic development since the Industrial Revolution and, and since the French Revolution, too, uh, is absolutely central. Right, as you said, I mean, it's, if if you're if you want to explain why there's sort of variation in the cross section, you know, why the, the United States is more democratic now than Turkey, then sure, it makes sense to look back to earlier historical events that might have set us on different paths. But but yeah, as you said, you know, given that there's a global trend, um, with right. obviously major exceptions and regressions, then then you kind of have to have uh, explanations that that uh, apply apply more broadly. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think just one very quick point. It, the, the really dominant impression one gets from the history is of convergence. It's not a, it's not a divergence. So these theories which emphasize divergence uh, are, are missing sort of the central fact of, of what we see. And convergence, of course, isn't absolute. There's still lots of countries uh, which are not democracies. Um, but we've seen a steady, well, over the, over the long run, we've seen a very steady increase in the proportion of states in the world that are democratic, a real convergence towards democracy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then also there's this level of the, the mechanisms, you know, it, there's a pretty clear and I think, you know, fairly sensible story, which you get into, you know, in your book that like, if you're more educated, you're, you know, you tend to want different things. You tend to see through uh, simple propaganda. You have information technologies that let you get a more accurate sense of the world from, you know, both within your country and abroad that let you, you know, coordinate with people um, in other places. And all of which I think, you know, there's been many, you know, part of the pushback has been sort of that all these things can be at least partly co-opted or turned against any trends towards democracy, but um, still the, the net effect uh, kind of does, does seem to push in the right direction. In the long run, I would say yes. In the long run. Yes. <laughs> in the long run, we're all dead. Uh, but uh, hopefully, hopefully our uh, descendants of everyone will live in, live yeah. in better well, countries. Well, that, that's a very long run. Maybe, maybe in the medium run. Maybe in the medium. Yes. No. Actually, I, I have hopes for yes. The countries that we study within, within your and my lifetime, which would be nice that they they could be on a better track. Um, so yeah. So actually, getting getting towards the the future, or at least more current events. Um, uh, you know, uh, we've we've been talking more generally, but obviously, your 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 central specialty is in Russia and uh, there's a lot going on there now. So, um, so what's, what is going on? Why did, uh, why did Putin invade the Ukraine and what's going to happen to him? Uh, and how should America as a government or Americans as a people be responding to this? Right. Well, um, Pilot questions you can take one at a time. Sure. Sure. Uh, it would be tempting to say that, uh, that the invasion of Ukraine was, uh, predicted by Putin's uh, domestic politics, because we've seen this uh, this pretty marked uh, reversion from 
uh, kind of techniques of spin and information manipulation to uh, pretty heavy-handed policing uh, and uh, repression in Russia, really since at least 2018 and starting even before that. Uh, so it would be tempting to say, well, that explains why he, he then became more aggressive abroad. And I think there's a kind of a uh, uh, harmony between the domestic politics and the international politics today, but I, I wouldn't draw you know, a direct uh, causal uh, link between the two. But I, I think the background to all this is that Russia in the last 10 years uh, really continued to modernize dramatically, even though Putin was trying to, I would say, freeze modernization, or at least social modernization, to avoid the political spillovers of it. Uh, so uh, Putin comes back to power in 2012, where it's not that he ever left power, but he goes from being prime minister to, to president again in 2012. Uh, and there's a wave of protests, which I think take him by surprise and seriously alarm him. And, and so he starts reorienting policy, and it takes quite a while, but reorienting policy uh, away from the, the sort of classic model of spin to uh, something more repressive. Um, and uh, by the late late uh, 2010s, so I would say around 2018, uh, I think he's kind of given up on, uh, to a great extent, given up on his political managers, these kind of cynical uh, operatives who are good at managing elections and uh, uh, using all these techniques to manipulate uh, the media and uh, project a certain project images and control people through that. And he's gone over to relying pretty directly on the security services. And he surrounds himself with a group of people who have uh, quite extreme nationalist and very sort of backward looking uh, views about, uh, about Russia and uh, the way uh, military power should be used in the world. Um, so uh, I see this kind of evolution in Putin, uh, which embraces both his his approach to domestic politics and ultimately uh, his approach to the world, um, and in particular to his his neighbors. And uh, I also see a process of of gambling, of, of taking successively bigger gambles. And uh, as in any gambling situation, when you win the first few times, uh, that gives you the courage to start raising the stakes or to keep raising the stakes. So he, he gambled in, in Georgia, uh, sending troops into to basically uh, uh, take control over South Ossetia and uh, Abkhazia. Uh, he, there was very little response from the West. He gambled again in, in Crimea, uh, occupying Crimea, uh, and the Western response was a little stronger, but still uh, not very significant. Uh, he gambled in sending troops into Syria, and I, I think the Russians perceived that as being a great success. And so he ends up gambling in uh, ordering a full-scale invasion of, of Ukraine. Um, Really, about the time of Crimea, I stopped trying to explain or to understand uh, his decisions in terms of a kind of rational cost-benefit analysis uh, using my sense of what 
a reasonable conception of Russia's national interest would be. I think for, for his early time in office, at least up to 2012, uh, Putin's foreign policy was quite understandable uh, in, in fairly rationalistic terms. Uh, more recently, uh, I, I have very little confidence that, that one can really do that. Uh, either his goals and his conception of the world are just so different that we can't really estimate how he sees the costs and benefits, uh, or he, he doesn't care about the costs and benefits so much. Uh, he's making decisions in some other way. So. Uh, I can't give you a good explanation of, of why he went into Ukraine in the way that he did. Uh, I could perhaps have understood if after uh, massing the troops on the borders of Ukraine as a kind of in, uh, a ploy to intimidate the Ukrainians and in, intimidate the West and demonstrate Western divisions and inaction, if after that, that he had simply uh, annexed the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, People's Republics, uh, that could have been a, a great success. I mean, it would have certainly uh, elicited less of a Western response than, than we now see. Um, but he chose to invade the whole of Ukraine and clearly he had some uh, inaccurate information about uh, public opinion within Ukraine, about how people would react and also about uh, the government of Ukraine and uh, and probably the army too, how how effective they would be in in fighting back, and he miscalculated, you know, just how strong the Western response would be, uh, ranging from uh, this imposition of unprecedented economic sanctions, the provision of of massive amounts of of weapons to to Ukraine, the joining of NATO or, or uh, application to join NATO, Finland and, and Sweden, uh, and so on. So uh, it's, it's very difficult to explain, uh, to explain these decisions without uh, direct knowledge about his mental processes and his immediate surroundings, which uh, sadly we don't have. Right. Um, I suppose it, it kind of goes a little bit with the uh... You know, that's the kind of the problem with the fear dictatorship, right? Is they they tend to it tends to be much more dependent on the whims or you know funny ideas of one man, and that that can lead to very erratic uh, kind of policy choices. And then also there's um, you know, there's just fewer checks, even in the, in the slightest of way, even from you know a surrounding elites on that person. And then also the information that he's operating off of tends to be more and more distorted, right? As there's fewer right. people around willing to say what's what's really going on. Right. Uh, I mean, even among fear dictators, uh, dictatorships, there are different types. So personalistic dictatorships uh, very often uh, have this have this characteristic that decisions are made by one individual and the information environment around him is is uh, deliberately or not deliberately uh, shaped by that individual in a way which uh, excludes critical voices and excludes a lot of, of information that people are afraid to bring to him. Um, there are other types of, uh, of fear dictatorships. So some fear dictatorships uh, have a strong ruling party, uh, which to some extent constrains the, the central leader. 
Um, but uh, yeah, very often uh, a fear dictator who is also a personalistic dictator uh, is is sort of set up to uh, present the type of hard to predict and potentially extreme behavior that we see in, in, in Putin uh, in the last year. Yeah, to, yeah, that's right. To, yeah, to be more precise, yeah, he's moving in that has moved in that personalistic direction as well as fear. So I guess in our last like minute or two, uh, is what, what else would you like to tell the world? Is there something that people are not getting about? Uh, I mean, you've been out there, you know, speaking your mind anyway. So, uh, so you've, you've had other chances to help people, but what are, what are, is there anything that you think people in the general discourse are missing about, um, about Russia and the Ukraine or, or any, uh, policy recommendation that you might advocate? Well, I mean, what worries me most at the moment is that uh, we really need to maintain the unity that we've seen so far. The, that already in Europe, we see uh, divisions, uh, and it's absolutely crucial in terms of preserving what there is of international order and uh, international institutions and uh you know, re- really restoring confidence in a liberal West, it's absolutely crucial that Putin not be seen as having uh, invaded a neighbor, uh, struck out aggressively and won. Uh, so uh, I was very impressed and, and, and uh, quite surprised, in fact, by the level of unity and uh, the military commitments uh, and uh, the very strong uh, resistance of the European countries. Uh, I'm not at all surprised, in fact, though, of course, uh, before the invasion, it would have been unthinkable. I'm not so surprised that uh, uh, Sweden and Finland are interested in joining NATO. Uh, mm. I, I had reservations about the way that NATO was expanded. Uh, but at this point, uh, it's absolutely essential uh, that we continue to provide the arms necessary for Ukraine to resist, uh, to fight back the Russians, uh, and uh, that we don't uh, create a situation in which Putin will view this big gamble as having succeeded, because as we see from uh, his past behavior, that will then encourage him to make another gamble, which may have even higher stakes. Uh, So, uh, that's how I see the current situation. Uh, we, the Ukraine, Ukrainians have fought back with tremendous courage and discipline and uh, surprising effectiveness uh, from many people's point, points of view. Um, but uh, it's going to take longer and uh, the West has to stand up for its basic values and support the Ukrainians and uh, continue ultimately to contain uh, Russia at this point. I mean, I think uh, in general, in uh, relations with, with the authoritarian world, uh, we can't simply decouple uh, from the authoritarian world. The, the, the world today doesn't work like that. We're interconnected in multiple ways, which we can't unravel. Uh, we have to be we have to welcome or we should welcome that engagement with the authoritarian world because Uh, the kind of linkages and ultimately the kind of modernization that uh, will eventually occur in those countries uh, will push in the right direction in terms of political development. Um, But we have to 
manage that engagement uh, in a smarter, more sophisticated way than in the past. We have to be aware of and uh, we, we need to resist the ways in which authoritarian governments of all types try to undermine the West and exploit their membership in international organizations and co-opt uh, agents in the West, uh, friends in the West, uh, to try and uh, manipulate our openness to weaken our own democratic politics and so on. So I think uh, we need to be sophisticated about that while continuing to engage. But in cases where there's uh, open aggression and uh, a military threat from an authoritarian country, uh, we have to have a sophisticated, well-resourced, unified uh, policy of containment. And uh, that's unfortunately where we are with regard to Russia. Uh, and uh, we need to uh, steel ourselves uh, to continue with that policy uh, for as long as it takes. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's tough news, but I think uh, you know, it makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, we'll wrap up here. Um, thanks so much for, uh, for coming on the show and sharing um, your book with, uh, with us. Um, the, again, the title is Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. And uh, again, encourage it. As I said, it looks like a big tome, um, but it's actually uh, just 200 pages of uh, very fast-paced uh, tour through um, a lot of what's happened in the past century with dictatorships and how things are working right now and really crucial to uh, for any of us to understand um, where we're at and where things might be headed, both in, in good and in bad ways. 